open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I will be talking on a pastor profile this morning. The pastor profile, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the word of God says this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, your translation may say bishop. It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred, incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. A pastor's profile. I have a story for you from the Revolutionary War. The man's name was Charles Lee. Charles Lee had been an officer in the British Army. Lisa, I've done got to crying, and I'm going to need one of those tissues there. This happens. I cry when I preach. I cry when I sing. I cry when I pray. I cry, cry when Georgia lost to Alabama. I mean, I just cry. <laughs> so it happens. You'd have to live with it. And uh, this is, we don't know how to teach that at the seminary, but we do. So, but Charles Lee... Was, had been an officer in the British Army and had served with some distinction and had quite a bit of military experience. He had uh, fought, I have a list here, in Poland. He'd fought in Portugal. He'd fought in the French-Indian Wars for the British Army. So he was uh, probably the most experienced military officer living in the colonies when the Revolutionary War broke out in 1775. And he wanted to be the commander-in-chief, but as you know, Charles Lee was not chosen as the commander-in-chief. The Continental Congress chose General George Washington. Well, this set Charles Lee off. He was a man of some uh, uh, ego and thought a lot of himself, and so he wasn't too happy, and he let people know about that. And... Uh, but he was an advocate of the revolution, and he, he was on their side, and so he served as a general. His anger seethed. He was famous for his uh, temper. In fact, so much so, the Mohawk Indians nicknamed him Boiling Water. That was his nickname. He habitually ignored General Washington's orders. Uh, Washington would tell him to do something, and he just wouldn't do it. He'd ignore it. He was uh, uh, disobedient. So in December 1776, he was enjoying himself at a place called Widow White's Tavern on Basking Ridge, New Jersey. And in December 15th, and that night, 1776, young Bannister Tarleton and his 16th Queen's Light Dragoons, these are British cavalry, captured General Lee while he was at the tavern in his nightshirt. And they rode him all the way to New York City on the back of a horse in his nightshirt. And he spent the entire year of 1777 captive to the British. And then in the May, uh, excuse me, February of 1778, there was a prisoner exchange that occurred and uh, General Lee was given back to the Continental Army. And he resumed his role as second in command to General Washington, still wasn't following orders. At the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse in, uh, in New Jersey, 
1778, he disobeyed one of General Washington's orders. Uh, Washington had ordered him to attack, and instead he retreated. General Washington relieved him of command on the spot and probably saved uh, the army from losing the battle by making his men stand and fight. Well, Lee was so upset, there, he, he quit, and he went and sulked. And a couple of years later, he died, but he was considered a patriot because he'd fought for the Americans. But remember, he'd spent the entire year of 1777 in captivity. In 1857, almost 80 years later, years after Lee's death, someone was researching the papers of G British General Howe, British General Howe, Washington's opponent. And in those papers were letters written from Charles Lee to General Howe while he was in captivity in 1877. And he gave Howe detailed plans of how to defeat the Continental Army. And we now know he was a traitor. It makes his actions at the Battle of Monmouth in 1778 rather suspect. And so what, what we now know was he was a traitor. But here's what I want you to remember. When he died, everyone thought, well, he's a patriot. But years later, when these secret letters to the British were discovered, the truth came out. And the truth was the man was a traitor. He was in the same, cut from the same mold as Benedict Arnold. And here's the story, I want, here's the point I want you to remember. Sooner or later... Who you are is going to be discovered. Sooner or later, a man's true character will be discovered. And sooner or later, everyone's going to know. You can keep it hidden for a while. But if a man is a person of low character, sooner or later, everyone is going to know. I have uh, served at a number of churches as interim pastor. And frequently, churches want to do a pastor profile. You're going to get a survey from your search committee. I think that's a good idea. They're going to be asking you some questions. But... Uh, Frequently, I get asked about pastor profiles, what, uh, what the church is looking for. And what I will tell you is this. You already have a pastor profile. It's found right here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, 15 characteristics of a pastor. And so you have your pastor profile right here. I, I want to encourage you to think long and hard about what we're looking at today. Actually, God's word gives us what we need to know about the pastor right here. And what you will see is that character is uh, really the first and primary trait. There's 15 traits we're looking at here. Only one of them has to do with function, able to teach. The other 14 all go to character. Who a man is is more important than what he does. And from this passage, you and I can learn what God expects of a pastor. So we're going to go. You have an outline in your bulletin. Our purpose today is that you will call a preacher who loves Jesus, believes the Bible, and is a soul winner. That's the goal. That's what we're looking out of this. So I have to give you a little background. Write this down. It's not in your notes, but write it down. In the New Testament, there are three titles for pastor. They all mean the same thing. You ready? Write these words down. The word elder, E-L-D-E-R. The word pastor, with which you're most familiar. And then the word we have in our text here today, the New American Standard says overseer, the old King James said bishop, means the same thing. Elder, pastor, overseer. They all refer to the same office. They're not separate offices. So Adrian Rogers put it this way. The word elder refers to a man's maturity, not necessarily age, but spiritual maturity. I have met people who were 55 years old and infants, and I've met 22-year-old young men who were unusually mature. So it's not about age. It's about spiritual maturity. Elder refers to their maturity. And then pastor refers to their minister. They're a shepherd. If you don't know, the word pastor means shepherd. So Jesus is the chief shepherd, and the pastor works under Jesus. So elder refers to maturity, and 
pastor refers to his ministry, and then overseer or bishop refers to his management, that there's leadership that goes with the office. So they all refer to the same office. And here today, we're talking about 15 specific traits, which I've divided into eight character goals and principles of integrity. And let me share with you the first one. It is the overarching principle. Look in your text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. I have to do a little Greek uh, grammar study with you for just a moment. Would you look at your text in 1 Timothy 3, 2 in your Bible or you've got it on your phone, whatever you're looking at. I miss the sound of pages turning when I come to church. Now everybody's clicking, and, and I think they're looking at that. They might be looking on Wikipedia, or they might be following NFL school. I don't know, but they're looking. So the overseer then must be what? Above reproach. Do you see that? Everybody say, I see it. All right. Then you see the verb in the sentence. You see the verb be. Do you see the verb be there? Okay. In English, that's... That character trait above reproach is to the right of the verb be. Do you see that in your Bible? Everybody see it there? The, see it? Okay. But in Greek, in Greek, in your Greek text, the character trait above reproach precedes the verb be, which is the main verb for this entire paragraph. So it says something like this. Uh, the overseer must above reproach be. And then the other 14 characteristics follow that verb. It is structured in such a way so that the overarching principle is above reproach. And if you want to know what it looks like to be above reproach, the other 14 character traits on the right-hand side of that verb explain it. So that's the overarching principle. That phrase, that word, is one word in Greek, above reproach. It means something like this. There's nothing you can grab hold of and say, aha, it's nothing which can be grasped about this person and say, aha, they are disqualified. There's nothing which you can really wrap your hands around and say, that person shouldn't be a pastor. So it's the idea that there's nothing you can grab a hold of. I am personally so very thankful that the, the text says the overseer, the pastor, the elder must be above reproach. I am extremely grateful it does not say perfect. Did you notice there it does not say the overseer must be perfect. Some of you are looking for a perfect pastor. You're just going to have to keep looking. No such critter exists in this universe. And I'm so glad it doesn't say perfect because I am not a perfect preacher. I drive down from Kansas City to Wichita to preach here at the church. And I get on the interstate. I'm so glad that it doesn't say perfect because sometimes when I get in the left-hand lane and there are people driving 50 miles an hour in the left-hand lane, my first thought is not, wow, aren't they safe? My first thought is, I wish I had some of those James Bond machine guns that could move them out of the way. My, so I'm glad it doesn't say perfect. I'm glad it doesn't say the overseer has to be perfect. When I go to the high V in Kansas City to get my groceries and I go to the express lane, y'all know about the express lane? How many items? 12 or 10 or less, right? And you get behind someone, they've got a month's supply in front of you in the express lane. My first thought is not, wow, this is a great opportunity providentially designed by God to witness to them. That's not my first thought. My first thought is, can't you count? That's my, so I'm, I'm glad it doesn't say perfect. I'm glad it doesn't say perfect when God looks at my iPod. All right, we don't do iPods anymore. Those are passe now, right? Whatever, everything's changing. Well, they, when you look at my playlist on my phone, my playlist is the most schizophrenic arrangement 
of music in the history of mankind. Because I have George Beverly Shea. I'm the last preacher in America who got that. But I have George Beverly Shea. And um, I have uh, the Happy Goodmans. And Mark Mattingly is secretly a Happy Goodmans fan. Y'all didn't know that. He secretly is. He's, he, he really is. But, and then I have like Leonard Skinner and, uh, and Ozzy Osbourne. It's all messed up. I'm just telling you. It's, it's, uh, crazy Train should be in the hymnal. But I'm just saying, it's, <laughs> your life is like that sometimes, right? Amen. 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 Help, thank you, brother. I hear that. Uh, so I'm glad it doesn't say perfect. I'm glad it doesn't say perfect. Last night I was with Brother Mark at Chick-fil-A. I, you know what? I, I don't know. How many of you, when you think of Chick-fil-A, you just think, you know, the coming of Jesus must be close. I mean, because we're almost close to the millennium. I mean, look at this sweet tea and Chick-fil-A. Anyway, but we're at Chick-fil-A, and I had to educate him on the lyrics of country songs. He didn't know. And it's shameful that me as a preacher and I train ministers at the Baptist seminary that I know the words of country songs like Papa loved Mama, Mama loved me, and Mama's in the graveyard, Papa's in the pen. It's awful that I know that. <laughs> and it's, I had to explain to Brother Mark the lyrics of David Allen Coe's uh, uh, You Don't Have to Call Me Darling, Darling, You Never Even Call Me By My Name. I mean, some of you know the last lyrics of that. So it's horrible that I know all that. So I'm glad it doesn't say perfect. Amen? It does say above reproach. There's nothing you can grab hold of and say, this guy's disqualified. And that leads to our second characteristic, and it holds a place of primacy in the list. Well, you see what it says. It says, above reproach. The minister must be above reproach. And then the first thing it says is, the husband of one wife. This is about relational purity. In Greek, the phrase husband of one wife is really one woman man. If you want to write that down, that's somewhat of a literal translation, one woman man Perhaps no phrase in the Greek New Testament has sparked more debate among Baptists. Usually Baptists want to debate whether or not the phrase prohibits a divorced man from serving as a pastor. To avoid the debate, some have attempted to say that Paul is merely prohibiting polygamy. Uh, he's most certainly not addressing polygamy here when he says the husband of one wife. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, if you'd been a polygamist, you wouldn't have even, even been a member of the church back then. Uh, until you had stopped your polygamy. But beyond that, the historical background contextually, polygamy really wasn't widely practiced in first century Judea or the Roman Empire uh, during the first century. It just wasn't. Now, divorce and easy remarriage and all those things, there were, uh, that was very common. But it's about one woman man. And the idea here is relational fidelity. And it holds a place of primacy. It is no coincidence that he says... The overseer must be above reproach or above reproach. He must be, and the first thing it says is, husband and one wife, one woman, man. Sexual purity is the first thing he drives home. And a minister, you have known the stories, and I have known the stories of preachers who have done unholy and ungodly things while pastoring churches. I have a file by my desk in a manila folder. I keep it in a hanging file by my desk where I can see it every day. It's to my right. And I have one word on that manila folder. The one word is fallen. F-A-L-L-E-N. Fallen. And every time there's a story in the media about some preacher who's done something stupid, committed some sexual sin or whatever. Some of them it's tax evasion. Some of it's uh, one guy shot somebody. All these horrible things. Every time one of those guys does something, I print it off and I put it in the folder. My fallen folder. 
And I don't have that folder by my desk to gloat over the failings of other people. That's not the reason. I keep the folder by my desk as a continual reminder because I don't ever want my name to wind up in there. It's my fallen folder. I want to live my life. Listen, when I die, here's my goal. I, I read this book, Purpose Driven Life, several years ago. A lot of Baptist preachers have, a lot of seminary professors thrown a lot of rocks at Purpose Driven Life. The main reason they don't like Purpose Driven Life is because it sold millions of copies and, and uh, their 500-page tome of the use of conjunctive chi in the New Testament hasn't just flown off the shelf, right? And so they're a little envious. Of, but I read the book, and I know I wasn't supposed to get a lot out of it, but I did. And so... One of the things he talked about was writing a life purpose statement in there. And I worked at that, and here's what I arrived at is my life purpose statement. You ready? That when I die, the three people that know me best, Lisa, Joy, and Annabeth, would be able to say, he was not perfect, but he wasn't a fake. And what you saw on Sunday morning is really what he tried to live Monday through Saturday. And he was not perfect. He had his failings just like everybody else, but he was not a fake. If those three people can stand up at my funeral and say that, it doesn't matter what happens or doesn't happen in my life. I will have considered my life a success. And if it says above reproach, it's relational purity, sexual fidelity to one's wife. Third, the third characteristic of of a pastor is this, personal discipline and, and maturity. Personal discipline and maturity. Notice the next characteristics it states in verse 2. It says, must be above reproach, the husband and one wife. And notice the words, temperate. That word temperate there, it literally means sober. And it's really not talking about alcohol use later. He gets to that later. He's talking about clear-headed, not under some other influence far into the gospel. So the idea is when you get drunk, you're under the influence of alcohol. When you smoke marijuana, you're stoned. You're under the influence of marijuana. And so when Paul uses the word sober here, he means that the pastor's not under some foreign influence, that he's sober-minded, that he's thinking clearly. Clear-headed might be a good translation. The next word is sensible or prudent. That means he has control over one's behavior and the impulses and emotions beneath it uh, that they're not just emotionally unhinged then it says respectable do you see that word temperate prudent respectable that's an interesting word it, it really it means well behaved or orderly you, you already know the word in Greek it's the the word cosmios cosmios and it's related to our word cosmos and it means order and, and ladies, you already use uh, the root of this word on a regular basis. And so the word cosmos is opposite to the word chaos. Chaos is there's no order. Cosmos is order. That's why we refer to the universe as a cosmos. And that's what the word respectable is right here. Cosmios is a, a, a related word. And so it means order. And ladies, you already know that word because you use cosmetics. At the root of the word cosmetics is cosmos. And so ladies, when you use cosmetics, you're, you're bringing order out of chaos. But it's, um, uh, um, it's, well, the attendance will be down next week. But nonetheless, it's, um, it's cosmos. And the idea is the pastor has an orderly life, that this is not someone unhinged, but they're orderly, they're disciplined. And notice the next word, hospitable. Do you see this? 
in verse uh, 2 again, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. That uh, George Knight in his commentary on 1 Timothy said this, He who must teach others and take care and exercise oversight and oversight over them must be open and loving to them. I'll say that again. He who must teach others and take care and exercise oversight over them must be open and loving to them. Hospitable. Lisa is my gift, and she has made our home an open and hospitable place. I can't tell you the number of people we've had in our home over the years. We've had... Uh, around our dinner table, we've had men trying to leave the homosexual lifestyle and looking for purity as opposed to succumbing to temptation. We've had people struggling with the death of a loved one. We've had lost people who are angry at God, don't believe in God. We uh, had people that come to our table that don't know Jesus, and sometimes they don't say all the right things. But she's made our place a, a hospitable Place And a pastor ought to have that gift of hospi hospitality that people feel welcome and that he's reaching out and his home is a place of refuge. There is a maturity and a dignity required of the pastor. Now, some of you young men here might be thinking about going into ministry and uh, some of you men might be thinking that God's calling you to preach. I want to speak, it's hard for me to say this. I, I'll, I'll speak as a parent and I'll tell you what I tell a lot of the young men at seminary. Because a lot of the young men at seminary, they want to start out in youth ministry. Youth ministry. They want to start out in youth ministry. And so one time, let, let me tell you this story. One time years ago, I had a young man at our school who put a hook through his lip on purpose. I mean, he wasn't fishing or anything. On purpose, he put this big nail through his lip. And, um, and I sat down and talked to Ken, and I had a long conversation with him. And I said, Ken, what do you want to do in life? I want to be a youth pastor. I said, okay. I said, well, Ken, let me talk to you as a parent to uh, someone. Uh, you're not driving my daughter anywhere if you're a youth pastor. He said, why not? I said, because you don't exercise good judgment. He said, how do you know that? I said, because you put a hook through your lip. And so, and my fear is that people who put hooks through their lips on purpose might not make the best decisions when driving my children across country. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? So uh, a I'm not saying a pastor has to you know, dress like a uh, a suit and tie every day. That's my point. But there is a maturity and a dignity um, required of the pastor. You know, I, I realize that things have changed, but I'm a little wary of skinny jean dudes with frou-frou hair running around telling me how they're going to reach the world for Jesus. I'm like, yeah, you didn't grow up the crowd I grew up with. I mean, brother, it's uh, somebody needs to wear some Wranglers around here at least. You know, what I'm, somebody help me out, right? Uh, somebody, I, thank you. I'm, I, I think somewhere. Skinny jeans got on men got left out of the Ten Commandments. I think that's right. I don't know. I, I'd hate to go back to Mount Sinai and find out about that. Anyway, um, let me tell you what I mean by dignity. I have a friend named Wayne Lee who used to be a um, he used to be a trustee at our school. He's a, an extremely fine Christian businessman from Dallas, Texas. He loves the Lord, and I hold him in the highest esteem. And he's been very good to our school. But he told me a story I'll never forget. His in-laws grew up in a little town called Dora, New Mexico. It's right on the border between New Mexico and Texas. Dora, New Mexico. And they were dirt poor. Got married when his mother-in-law was 16. His daddy-in-law was 19. No sooner they got married within the first three or four months they got pregnant and not, hadn't been married a little over a year and already had the first baby. And they're living in Dora, New Mexico. And in 1927-28, the year's uh, a little uncertain, there was a group of Christians in Dora, New Mexico, that wanted to start a church. 
And across the border in Texas at another small town, this uh, college student from Baylor University was preaching a tent revival. And people were getting saved. And so they went over to this little group of Christians from Dora, drove across the state line. And they met down this, sat down with this young preacher. And they said, um, listen, if you're not preaching anywhere next week, we're trying to start a church in Dora. Would you come over and preach for us? And they had what's called a brush arbor meeting. Teenagers, this may sound crazy, but what they used to do is they'd pull brush together. And they would make little temporary structures in the summer. And they had brush arbor meetings. That's what they did. And so this, some of you senior adults are going to know the name. Kids, you won't know this name. Senior adults, that young preacher little red-headed preacher student at Baylor University. His name was W.A. Criswell. And kids, he was one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century. And he, he went across the border there to Dora, New Mexico, and he preached. And one night, this little couple, Wayne Lee's in-laws, newly married couple, they're living in a little adobe walled house with a dirt floor. They did not have a, a floor. had a dirt floor. And they are pert. If you ever heard the phrase dirt, dirt poor, that's where it comes from. And one night after the revival, they wanted to have the preacher at their house. And they invited a young W.A. Criswell into that little house with a dirt floor. And what they remembered for the rest of their marriage was he treated them with dignity and courtesy and respect. And he was gracious and he made them feel loved and welcomed. And he didn't make anything to do out of the fact they're living in a house with a dirt floor. And when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, Wayne Lee got up with W.A. Criswell and said, do you remember? He said, I remember it very clearly. I remember preaching in door and I remember going to that home. And he wrote them a long letter telling them how happy he was they're living for Jesus. Let me tell you what there's... What I learned from that story. Listen, preachers ought to carry themselves in such a way that the poorest person in the community knows I'm not talking down to you. The poorest person in the community knows I care about you. That they treat somebody, whether they're the upper crust or the lower crust and everybody in between, that the pastor has an attitude and a ministry that they reach out to everyone. There's no social barriers with the pastor. Doesn't have any favorites. They're hospitable. They're kind. They're gracious to everyone, regardless of their status in life. There's a lot more I'd like to say about that. We've got to move on to the next characteristic. Here's what it is. Able to teach. He's a skillful teacher. That's number four. Look at verse three again. Uh, verse two again. Must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Of the, all the characteristics in the list, this is the only one that deals with function, able to teach. Now, I, somebody says, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, I'm not real sure, but I think teaching is laying it on and preaching is rubbing it in. Okay, that's what, probably what it's going but you better be able to preach. If a guy can't preach, he doesn't need... And I would just say to you, some of you who are aware of some debates going on, I don't see anything in the New Testament about an elder who doesn't preach. Uh, so he's, he's called to teach and to preach the Bible. Better make sure the preacher knows how to preach. Better make sure that the preacher's been called to preach. There's a burning in his heart, like Isaiah, that there's this fire within me. I can't hold it back. I've got to tell people about Jesus. I've got to preach the Bible. I've, I've been called to preach. To preach the gospel, preacher must be able to teach and preach the gospel. Now, let me just give you a word of, of warning for us as Baptists. And I'm going to step over here to make a point. 
When we build Baptist churches, we always put the pulpit at the center, and I agree. Why? Because we believe the preaching of the Word is the main thing. We want all the focus on the preaching of the Word. And the only function in the list is able to teach, able to preach. And sometimes, because we as Baptists place such emphasis on the ability for someone to preach the Bible, and, and many of us are afraid to be in, to speak in public anyway and all these sort of things, and it's, it's really a, a special gift, sometimes we will give a guy a pass on his morals and his ethics if he's a good preacher. But I'm telling you the only function in this list is able to teach the other 14 go to character if you don't miss the forest for the trees who a man is is more important than what he does and a man who is not moral and impure doesn't get the right to preach well we've got to move on We've got more to say. Not only must be a faithful teacher, but there's a little shift here. The, in verse 2, he mentions all these things positively, all these things that the pastor should be. And then in verse 3, he, um, he starts talking about some things that shouldn't be going on in a pastor's life. And so the fifth characteristic is an absence of vice. He has all these things that shouldn't be going on. Verse 2, there's some things that should be there. Verse 3, things that shouldn't be there. So there's an absence of vice, violence, and greed. Notice what it says. First of all, not addicted to wine. He's, he's not uh, a substance abuser, not someone who has an addiction. One of my dearest friends in the world that really helped me so much in life, he's passed away now, passed, uh, died about 10 years ago. And he was a good man and he taught me so much. But late in his life as a preacher became addicted to prescription painkillers. And so this issue of substance abuse is a real one. Now, some of you are aware that sometimes physicians and people in high-stress jobs, they, they lean on alcohol to try to handle the stress. Well, that can happen to preachers too. And he says he shouldn't be a drunkard, not addicted to wine. But more than that, he, he goes on and he says, not only uh, uh, not addicted to wine, but look, notice this, not pugnacious. Do you see this? Not pugnacious. The Holman Christian Standard says not a bully. He's not uh, getting in your face, not fighting. Gentle, peaceable, not always looking for a fight. A leader, yes. A dictator, no. And then it says this, free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Um, there are two extremes in the American church when it comes to the preacher. Some churches want to treat the preacher like a multi-millionaire and, and they live that lifestyle. On the other extreme, some churches want to keep the preacher poor. Uh, I talked to some churches and I think this is their attitude sometimes. God said a preacher ought to be poor and humble. God keep him humble, we'll keep him poor, right? And so I, I, I just want to talk to you about paying the preacher for just a second. Um, I was a pastor of Turner Memorial Baptist Church in Garner, North Carolina for eight years, and God did a great work there. And uh, we still have dearest, some of our dearest friends in the world, members of that church. But it was a, a family chapel. And uh, some people hunt, some people fish, some people kill preachers. Just depends on what your hobby is. And so everybody's got to have a hobby. And so they'd had eight pastors in 32 years. You do the math. And it was, the stay was less than an average four years because they had a bunch of interims in between. And so they're just running them in and out, running them in and out. And they had a parsonage. And we lived in a Baptist parsonage for seven years. Now, I have been around some churches that keep a parsonage and they keep it in good uh, condition. This one was not. It had the most hideous green linoleum in a kitchen you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it just would make you want to go join another church. It was horrible. And so we lived in this parsonage. For seven years, my wife, Lisa, is now post-tribulational in her eschatology because she thinks she's already been through the tribulation living in that parsonage for seven years. And can I tell you what frustrated me the most? Listen, one time, it's true. 
one time the uh, the stove had a had a range top went out and it didn't work and so I called the guy I said man we got to get a new stove in the parsonage doesn't work and he said well we're gonna have a committee meeting about that next week and I said you know we need to eat tonight and so uh, but the frustrating thing for me was I'm just gonna give you an insight how how it goes for preachers and money and getting paid frustrating thing for me living in that worn out house and I had married the prettiest the smartest girl in my group of friends that loved Jesus I was so proud of this girl I married and here I was seven years in this worn out dumpy old house yes parsonage so one time there was this guy went into the went into a, a pet store and he said I need 50 mice and a thousand cockroaches and they said, what do you need 50 mice and 1,000 cockroaches for? So I don't want to get into it, but just I need 50 mice and 1,000 cockroaches. They said, well, to feed the reptiles with the mice we have here, the cockroaches we'll have to order. It'll take us a couple days. He said, great, I'll be back in two days. So he comes back two days later, and, and they said, hey, we've got your order. Here it is, 50 mice, 1,000 cockroaches. What in the world do you need 50 mice and 1,000 cockroaches? He said, well... I'll just tell you, I was a pastor at the Baptist church down the street, and they decided they were going to fire me. And when they did, they said, and we tell you one more thing, preacher. When you leave the parsonage, we want to find it in the same condition it was when you moved in. So I need 50 mice and 1,000 cockroaches before I leave. That is too true. I'm just telling you. But you got to pay the preacher, but we're not in this for money. Uh, it, it's, it's not free from the love of money. That, um, that we carry ourselves with dignity. Let, let me try to give you an example of what I mean. A number of years ago, we were going on a ski vacation, and I, I was preaching somewhere. Lisa was fly, uh, driving with the girls out to Denver, and then I was going to fly out there and meet them. And so they were in Denver on a Sunday morning without me, and they went to a church. It looked all hip and cool, and so they went. And in the sermon, the pastor used profanity. Yeah, he used cuss words in the sermon. Now, we've been teaching our girls that Christians don't talk like that. But here you got a pastor cussing in the pulpit. And, you know, my daughters are staring at Lisa, and she's staring at him. What do we do? And um, what I'm saying is I don't want to carry myself in such a way that some parents driving home from church trying to explain why the pastor acted like an idiot. That you carry yourself with dignity. Well, there's another character trait. Not only that, he's a good father and he's a good husband. Notice what it says in Verse uh, 4, he must be one who manages his own household well and must keep his children under control with all dignity. Let me just tell you something. Jesus is first. My family comes second. Church is way on down the list. And any preacher that puts his church in front of his family has made a fatal mistake. God called man to be a father before he called him to be a pastor. God called him to be a husband before he called him to be a pastor. Now, see, I was set up in all this because I met, just so you know, I met Lisa. I was on a date with another girl. We, didn't, we met the old-fashioned way. We didn't use e-harmony. I was out with another girl. So we um, I met, and so I met her, and I asked her to marry me, and, and it's all great. And about that time, I started telling her, I think I'm called to preach. And sometime after that, she finally fessed up and said, well, listen, I hadn't told you this when we started dating. When I was 12 years old, God told me I was going to marry a pastor someday. I was set up. God hadn't told me that. He told her that. I'm dating a good-looking brunette. I didn't know she's called to be a pastor's wife. You see what happened? See what God did to me? And they said, okay, well, by the way. So anyway, you, but you got to love your family. Put your family first. It's hard on preacher's kids. I'm pleading with you to show some grace towards preacher's kids. Everybody's always poking around wanting to know what the preacher's kids do. Oh, really? How are your kids doing? I don't know how yours doing. I, I, people get, get after, they, they hold preacher's kids up to unreasonable standards. 
Want them to be perfect. The standard is this. Do they? Do you have to discern between being developmentally correct and being rebellious? There are times when teenagers do, especially teenage boys, do dumb things. Why? Because they're teenage boys. So one night, it's a true story. One night I was in the parking lot up the, the Paulding Plaza where we all cruised our cars at. And I had blown up the motor in my Camaro, so I was up there in my Ford Fiesta already humble. But my friend Rocky Forrester was with me. And do y'all remember this song from the 60s called Wipeout? No, 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 no. It came on the radio, and Rocky said, Branch, I dare you to surf around the parking lot. I said, what do you mean? He said, get on the roof, and I'll drive your car. So I got on the roof of the Ford Fiesta, and I surfed around the parking lot while we're playing wipeout really really loud and I got applause and people were cheering for me I didn't know my pastor was there in the parking lot that night he was watching me doing this the whole time um you see I it was actually my ministry to my community there was no entertainment in Dallas Georgia I was the entertainment and here I was surfing around well, is that really sin no that's what teenage boys do and let me tell you pastors kids are teenagers just like everybody else they're going to wear weird clothes. They're going to do weird things to their hair. They're going to surf around the parking lot on top of a Ford Fiesta. I mean, they're going to do, but there's a difference between developmentally correct and open rebellion. And you have to make a discernment. I, I am a member at Providence Baptist Church in, in uh, Kansas City. You may not know, my fa- our founding pastor was the Reverend Robert James, 1843. True story. Founded by the Reverend Robert James in 1843. You don't know the Reverend Robert James. You've never heard of him. But you know his sons. The Reverend Robert James had two boys. Their names were Frank and Jesse. I go to a church founded by Jesse James' daddy. That's no lie. True story. I'm not, I'm not, they, don't, they don't believe me. I'm telling you, that's true. And uh, some of you say, well, why did Jesse James turn out the way he did? Because he had to play with the deacon's kids. That's why. That's what did it to him. (laughs) And so you need to cut preacher's kids some slack and let them be kids. Some of y'all, y'all always poking around in the preacher's kids. Oh, what are y'all doing? What are you up to? You kids aren't perfect. Well, no, they're not perfect. They're going to be children. You need to let them be children. Manages his own household well. Good father, good husband. Not only that, the pastor must not be a new convert. Look what it says in verse 6. And not a new convert. That word, it's one word in Greek. It's where we get our word neophyte from. So let me give you the danger. I'm going to give you a case study in the danger of ordaining a new convert. 1946, a young man graduated third in high school at Meridian, Mississippi. And he had an appointment to West Point. But he was 16 years old. He had to wait a year because you, can, you have to be 17 to go to West Point. But he had an appointment, graduated third in his high school. And uh, in this year while he's waiting, he supposedly gets saved. Goes to Bob Jones University and starts studying college at Bob Jones. And one year, I think it was 47 or 48, the date escapes me, he and two other students from Bob Jones take a summer mission trip to Vernal, Utah. I'm not making this up. They go to Vernal, Utah, which is the heart of Latter-day Saint country. They set up a tent on a lot of ground there in the town. And for a summer, three months, they hold revival meetings every night in this tent in Vernal, Utah. Vernal, Utah. They're independent Baptist students at this college. And, of course, no one comes. One day, they scrape together enough money, and they buy some advertisement on the radio. And they said, tonight, the message is going to be everything that's wrong with the Mormon church. 200 people showed up, and a fight broke out. True story. 
So three months, these three students from Bob Jones are in Vernal, Utah. There was a Southern Baptist church in Vernal, Utah that had been started a couple years. It was the second Southern Baptist church in Utah. It's called First Baptist Church, Vernal, Utah. Now, these kids were independent Baptists. They didn't really like Southern Baptists, but they went there because it's the only Bible-believing church in town, so that's where they're attending that summer. They never even joined that church. And at the end of the summer, the young man who's kind of leader of this group asked to be ordained, and after attending First Southern Baptist Church, Vernal, Utah, for three months, they ordained a man that you know named Fred Phelps. You have no business ordaining anybody you've known for three months, hadn't been saved for a couple of years. Don't ordain and you convert. Not only this, he has to have a good reputation with outsiders. Look at verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. The grammar is emphatic here. The person's praise may be given in opposition or grudgingly. The, the people who are not Christians, but they are forced to admit he is what he claims to be. The world has two extremes when it comes to preachers. They either think every preacher's goofy like Father McCahey on MASH, or they're just a hypocrite like Elmer Gantry in Sinclair Lewis's novel. But preachers are called to be above reproach, and that means they have a good reputation with outsiders. They may not like what we preach or what we stand for, but they're forced to admit, you know, he is what he presents himself to be, a good reputation with outsiders. I want to close with a story. David and Beulah Buckley came to Kansas City, Missouri to start what we now know as the City Union Mission in 1918, I think the year is. I think this is their 100th anniversary. You have to check me on that. But they started in what was then a red light district with brothels. It was technically illegal, but the police turned another eye. And so this region of the town was a red light district. And they lived in a house they called the Harbor. They lived in a house they called the Harbor. They bought an old brothel and turned it into a ministry. And they had Bible studies in the front parlor. And one day, a prostitute knocked on the door. She's weeping and crying, and she says, My baby has died. Will you please preach a funeral for my baby? And she was scared to death because what she thought David Buckley was going to say was, Your baby died because of the life you lived, and you're responsible for your baby's death. You understand what she was afraid of? So they're in the front room of the harbor, and they, it was hot, so they raise all the windows, and this, they bring the little body of this dead baby, this prostitute's baby, and David Bulkley preaches about grace and forgiveness and God's presence in hard times and how Jesus shows mercy to the, to the least of these. And, and he preached a wonderful gospel message in that front harbor with prostitutes and a dead baby. He did not know it, but across the back alley, listening out a window, was a na lady named Annie Chambers. She's one of the most famous people in Kansas City history. Her name was Annie Chambers, and she was the most well-known madam of a brothel in the entire Midwest. She's in 90 years old. She had had a baby die years before. And she was leaning out the window across the alleyway, listening to David Buckley preach. He didn't know she was listening. And what she expected was, yeah, this preacher's going to tell her, yeah, you, your baby died because of the life you're living and it's all your fault. But instead she's listening and she heard this sermon about grace and forgiveness and hope. A couple of years later go by, there's a fire in the neighborhood. Beulah Bulkley is standing on a street corner watching the fire engines come to this house. And Annie Chambers walks up beside her and she says, uh, she said to her, uh, I... 
I would like for us to be friends. I know what you've been doing. I've been watching you. I heard the sermon your husband preached over that woman's baby. I've been watching you, and I want you to be my friends. And they begin to witness to Annie Chambers. And Annie Chambers gave her life to Jesus Christ and turned her brothel into a place for Bible studies. And she put on her wall a plaque that said, Isaiah chapter 1, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What's the point? Somebody's always listening. David Buckley's preaching a sermon. He has no idea Annie Chambers is across the back alley listening to every word he says. He and his wife are ministering. They have no idea Annie Chambers is watching how they're treating people. Somebody's always listening. Somebody's always watching. And we have to have preachers that are living a life in such a way that lost people want to hear the gospel. That they want to hear about Jesus. Now listen, I'm going to go in a little different direction for just a second. I want to, I want to talk about evangelism for just a second. Listen to me. I'm going to say something that needs to be said. I'm going to say something that needs to be said to this church. All across America, white churches in the downtown ran and ran and ran and ran to the suburbs. But this church stayed. This church stayed. And listen to me, all around you, African-American people, Hispanic people, Vietnamese people, white people, why not just once? Can't God send down a soul-winning preacher who gets a church turned on for evangelism? And we don't care what your color is. We don't care what your background is. We want you to know Jesus Christ. We want you. Wouldn't it be something that right here in Wichita, the great-great-grandchildren of white sharecroppers from Alabama and the great-great-grandchildren of slaves from all over West Africa and the grandchildren of people that came across the Rio Grande and people that fled Vietnam communism all joined the Heather at an altar in said thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ thank God for Jesus we love Jesus Christ look what he's done in my life don't you want a church like that don't you want a church church ought to look a little bit like heaven I tell you some of these folks they get to heaven I don't know what they're going to think you know some of these people say you know what's going to happen what's God going to say to me when I get to heaven they might be real surprised if God says buenos dias I mean what We all think God's going to be just like us. Don't you want that kind of church? Well, why not right here and why not now? Why not? Why not? What's in the way of building an evangelistic, soul-winning church that goes after lost people with a passion, that has a heart to reach the lost? Why not right here? Why not now? Why not in this city? Why not? God would make it true. That God would bring it down.